part four, Roots. A quote from Benoit Mandelbrot from a TV interview called Fractals and Animated Discussion. The idea that a mountain is made of rocks and that each rock is like a small mountain in itself is an idea very familiar to mountaineers. Friends of mine who climb mountains send me accounts in which the climber was amazed to find that the top of the Matterhorn was like the entire Alps in miniature. Chapter 1. Der Kult ist ihr Getzt. The distant yell of the Biloxi fault took fresh harmonics from the Rose's song and amplified it until... For a while, a vast, unearthly orchestra played the old tune, told the old story of lies and truths, of betrayals and sacrifices, of quests and oaths, of love and loss and resolutions that are not always tragic, the old story which is echoed by our own. When her old story was at last modified to fractured cacophony by the Biloxi fault, the rose struck out up the beach towards the terminal cafe, whose lines shifted into focus against the lurid, uneasy funnel of the fault. The terminal was a two-storey clapboard sprawl of dining room, gambling area, and various rooms to let. A particularly patterned light billowed from the kitchens, and the paint was blistered and peeling, while the aluminium roof roiled with moody reflections. The man over the main entrance announced the name of the cafe and in guttering ice cream neon proclaimed itself to have, quote-unquote, the last heat on the beach. She pushed back the screen. The inner door swung easily and she entered, the subject of suspicious eyes. She began to walk towards a raised area at the far end of the hall, the horrible maelstrom of the fault framing them. A group of Yugadors had their whole attention upon a flat game. The air surrounding them grew cloudy and garish as they played, their eyes staring deeply into whole universes of their own creation. Jack Karakwazian sits at his game, wagering the highest psychic stakes from a position conventionally known as the Dead King's Chair. His stoic back is against the whirling patterns of chaos, ceaselessly forming and reforming. His fellow gamblers know him as Al-Karin. There are shades amongst these players. Men and women who by some chance have lost their own hold on life, yet still wish to play at the tables. Surrogates of the living gamblers, contributing their remaining experience and cunning to the game. They will do anything for even a hazy simulation of existence. The alternative is extinction. All these Yugadors have the abstracted, dedicated, ascetic appearance of a strict order. The Egyptian smiles on them. A kindly jackal. There was once a story told in Memphis when Jack Karakwazian worked there of an upriver captain on the Missouri out of St. Joe an octoroon woman who could read currents and waters better than any pilot, who was keenly courted by owners, white or black. She had lost her own stern wheeler to a pirate attack while waiting for steam in the Nebraska Streak, and had caught up with the thieves only after they had broken the boat's back in the Whitewater Channel. 
She was said to have killed the pirates to a man using a rapier. He seemed to recall she had some kind of Dutch name, a familiar one. Well, that's her, thinks Jack Karakwazian as she stalks into the terminal. A wary stranger. Her skin is the colour of dark olives tinged with pink. Her hair a subtle red. Her eyes are brown green and there is a vibrancy about her that reminds Mr Karakwazian of something that is not wholly human. And when she tells him her name he offers her the respect he reserves for all legions. Captain Von Beck, I am at your service. He stands and bows. His long arms lift a little towards her. His gentle fingers still holding a shimmering deck extend almost as if to embrace her and his smile is a thing to fear and to adore. No matter how impossible he has set his handicaps and how high he has raised the psychic stakes, he never loses. He marvels at unsought inspiration, the unwanted power, the unlooked-for streak of luck had made an unhappy madman of him. All he ever desired was what he lost out past McClellan, where herons flew like grey angels through the black cypress branches, and three gold stains lay on the pewter water like ingots of purest gold driven into the deep heart of reality. He wanted what pride and blind folly had lost him when he had failed to follow his heart. Rose von Beck, used to most recognitions, is unsurprised by his greeting. The ghastly colours behind Jack Karakwazian change suddenly so that his pale skin and long black hair appear almost a negative, an image which fills the rose with more than a hint of nostalgic terror. She speaks to her fellow adept with great courtesy, explaining that she has a message for him which she has memorised. It is unwise to carry written language between the first and second eaters. Mrs. De Vero presents her compliments to Mr. Karakwazian and respectfully invites him to make his way into the second ether where we may be reunited. This lady, Captain Von Beck, will be his guide, signed with enduring love and with faith in a mutual destiny, Kalinda De Vero. The Rose is unused to the terminal. Her attention wanders from Jack Karakwazian's face to the agitated shadows, like doomed souls reaching aimlessly into the emerald green electrics of the tables. Jack Karakwazian sat back from his game, his delicate Egyptian features giving him something of the appearance of a fox, in white lace and black velvet, ready for any human trick. You would not, I hope, be making fun of me, man. This response surprises the Rose. She has never before seen eyes wearier than her own, and is impressed by the evident intensity of his affection for her friend. I am not, sir, she promises. Jack Karakwazian stood up, slipping his lean arms into his black silk jacket, abandoning the shades with whom he had been playing old funny's chopper out of an obscure sense of charity. The shades immediately fell into postures of near stupor, no longer animated by his generous will. The Rose remembers her own recent brush with two malignantly animated shades. She pities the half-creatures, but she is never unhappy to see the last of them. 
Jack Karakwazian stepped down from the dead king's chair, his back still firmly presented to the pink and yellow horror which was the current manifestation of the Biloxi fault, and which even the Rose preferred not to confront. He took her arm and led her up a ramp, sliding in a kind of reverse gravity helter-skelter to his room where the light poured like blood into a dark blue pool. He apologised for his careless shielding. It gives me comfort, this illusion of being at the centre of the maelstrom. I can pretend to face reality here. He saw that she disapproved of his cynicism. He apologised. He had become unused, he said, to well-bred company and had a feeling he was mad. He shook his head like a dog and collected himself. You have seen Mrs. Devero recently, ma'am. Relatively recently. She awaits you. She believes you will want to join us. I am at her service, ma'am, as well as yours. Where do we travel? How far? I must pack. I fear there is no provision you can make against our particular journey, sir. It is as if the rose imitates his own formality. Again he paused. Oh, ma'am. You are not old death, are you? In a fresh disguise, come hunting for my soul. I earnestly hope that I am not, she smiles a quick reassurance. Death, sir, is my enemy. Jack Karakwazian, rolling his booted feet in the rivulets of barley sugar which spilled upon his obsidian carpet, looked at her earnestly. As he remains mine. Shall we go? suggests the rose. She waits outside his unsteady door as he changes his linen. He shares Sam Oakenhurst's fastidious obsessions. The rose is reminded of a bullfighter preparing to confront his opponent. And yet the way he moves like a dancer and holds his shoulders a flamenco advertises no artifice. She believes he is naturally graceful. Like her lover, Sam Oakenhurst, who is in other respects a very different individual. She wonders how Mr. Oakenhurst fares with the machinois. Do we go up the trace? Mr. Karakwazian asked as they descended into the terminal. Not to Natchez she tells him, but to New Orleans. We're waiting on Sam. You're familiar with the quarter? More than sometimes suits my peace of mind, he acknowledged the significance of her question. But we can get a place where we'll be okay. If Sam stays in with us, we'll not have to fear the machinois. I know where we shall be almost safe, she says. Boudreau Ramsadine performs an eccentric figure on the dance floor to the throb of his pillow Z-band, while his tiny partners flock about him like monarchs, all red and black. He waves the two Yugadors farewell. With a rare gesture of finality, he watches them through the bright lattice of gold and fluttering copper, an expression of affection on his brutish face. They leave for the stables, where Jack Karakwazian always has two, house two horses prepared. Mounted, they returned to the blue and yellow beach, the garish vault filling the sky to their left, capering and farting like an angry ape, trying to take human shape. The air immediately above it is a serene, pale blue, but everywhere else are the bruised, sickening colours of ruptured reality. 
It's been behaving like that for almost a season, said Jack Karakwazian. Death imitating life.